gonna share a word that is like like wrestling and burning in me. So do you guys know how cows eat their food? They chew it and then it goes in like this other stomach and they just keep chewing, right? And so I feel like like I've been what I'm gonna share with you is something that I've been chewing on and then I felt like the Lord really just spoke in Indonesia. I'm going to share that part with you. And then I came and processed this with Jason and Kim. We chewed on it some more. And they're like, you need to come share that at the source. And I feel like I'm still wrestling it. And I, I started chewing, like studying it out Friday. And then I was like, oh man, this is really deep. I don't know if I'm ready for this. And so I, I guess what I'm telling you, is it okay if we chew together in the word? Like I'm like probably in a month I'll have more and maybe in six months, but we're just going to talk a little bit about that. Are you not playing? Oh, he turned you off. Okay. So we're going to just talk about that. So we're going to talk about living in a Babylon culture. And what does that mean? And, and maybe just what does it mean to live in an American culture? What does it mean to be believers, to believe, um, yeah, to, to be radical about Jesus, radical to be in the kingdom of God? And how do we interact with people around us? And what do I mean about culture? I mean our, our, our ways of thinking, our behaviors. And, and so we're going to try to describe something together that, that, that we're here. We're going to look first at the scriptures, and then I'll end kind of where we're at. But as we talk about culture, could you describe, how, how could a fish um, describe water? Right? Fish have been in water their whole lives, and it's just a part of them. How can you describe air? You live in air all the time, right? You're constantly breathing, and you feel it when the wind blows, but air is just so normal to us. So the culture of America that we live in is absolutely normal, and yet I want to process and wrestle with you together what would it mean what would it be like to, to live fully radical for the kingdom? And maybe we don't have to accept everything in culture. Maybe you've already thought and you have good conclusions. If so, then you can process with me. But this is a little bit my own wrestling. So I've been thinking this. Let me, let me give you just a little, little context to this. So you guys know who the Mennonites are? You guys know a little bit? So how many of you know what the Mennonites that, that wear hats a little bit, right? Have you seen them? They live like Amish and... Um, they live in small towns in Kansas. Some of the Mennonites that are, that are radical against culture, like they don't have tractors, they don't use machinery. Some may or may not have electricity. So one answer that the Mennonites that I'm describing, they've said we've got to be so separate from America or culture that we're going to kind of live pre-kind of normal times, Right? That's one way to do it. I, I'm Mennonite myself, but I'm not that variety, right? So the Mennonites have many different um, ways of fleshing this out. I, I, I grew up in a, in a Mennonite family um, background. I can trace my family history to Ukraine, to the, to the 1800s when they came over. Um, and it's cool. They were the ones that brought the wheat over to Kansas. And so Mennonites were farmers. And um, Anyway, so Mennonites have always at one level been kind of this against culture. So I guess that's in my DNA of thinking. So that's where I feel like the Lord has me. Okay, so I go to Indonesia in March. 
And I went with a, a friend, and we were there to equip some disciples. And then my brother died over there in 2008, so I was able to go see where he had passed away. So I'm in this processing of culture, thinking through the... And, and here was just one of the things that I, I observed as I got over there. Indonesia is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Un- unbelievable. Um, in this one area we were driving, it felt like, like I thought, if this is what a part of what Garden of Eden was like, it'd be amazing, right? Rain all the time, jungle, paradise, incredible warmth, people warm. And they can grow anything there because it's volcanic you know, soil. So they can literally grow anything. They, we get our coffee from there, right? You know that, right? We have Indonesian coffee. So they, can you imagine living off the land? And here's this thing that I found. I thought, oh my goodness, there's Starbucks everywhere. Now, why did that strike me? Because it's, it's, it's an American coffee phenomenon, right? You may love coffee. I'm thinking... We are in Indonesia, where I can go and get local coffee at a local place, but I found myself doing what? Like going to Starbucks, because it was familiar. It, just the odd thing in it, you guys, in culture, was that America, we, we had to export our kinds of coffee, our culture, our restaurants. We do that all over the world. So that's just like a really small example but am I, as I'm over there in Indonesia, halfway around the world, I just started seeing America and even in new, new lenses. And thought, huh, I wonder how much that I've just accepted of this culture and I get here. God, you just, you want to kind of mess up in my thinking. So that's where this journey kind of intensified, came back. And so here we are. So we're going to talk a little bit there. You guys good? Yeah, all right. All right, well, Genesis 1 to 3. You don't have to go there, but we're going to start. So in this place of Eden, God created man in his own image. And in Eden was this meeting place that was to be between God and heaven and the reign and rule of God and and us. So we were made in his image. That means we have the DNA of God. We have the kingdom of God written in us. We all are made to to be like Him, to think like Him, to create, um, not to become gods, right? But to become like Him, to be conformed to His image. We were given five five roles. We were to be fruitful, meaning we were to have lots of, like, well, fruit, take care of the, the land, right? To have fruit from the trees and vegetables, and to have spiritual fruit, to um, multiply, to have kids, right? To have babies, have moms and dads come together and multiply, which is making disciples. To scatter, to fill. So don't stay in one area, but to go and, and live. Then we were to go to the areas that were not under the reign of God and subdue it. So that means where there's weeds growing, right? Natural weeds and spiritual weeds. We're to like push them back. Right? How many of you have a garden right now? You're working on your garden, rototiller, you're pulling weeds out, right? We've got to prepare the soil. Right? That was to subdue. And then we are to reign and rule. You guys are made to rule. To partner with God, to rule, to be a leader in your area. Adam and Eve were to rule. And so they did that by, by naming animals. Being in charge of the garden. They were in charge of it. 
And this was this partnership. But in that, God didn't make us robots as we know. He wanted partners. He wanted us to be like Him, but He also wanted us to worship Him and to do it His way. And so He put those two trees. And they had a choice. They could come worship the tree of life, worship Jesus, worship presence, have fellowship, have communion with God. Or they could turn to their own ways, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and reason and logic and their own senses. And so we know what Adam and Eve did. They were tricked. Satan came, and they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes. They're naked now. How did they know they were naked? It's because now their sin was exposed. They They cover up, and they're kicked out of the garden. Now sin is there, and now the enemy has the keys, has the authority. He's the God of this age. And he's used that tree of knowledge of good and evil to distort, hasn't he? To distort. Think of how many religions do you know? How many ways of thinking are there? Even within Christianity, dozens and dozens and dozens of denominations. The enemy has been distorting culture, distorting ways of thinking from the beginning. And it's all about this issue of source. Either doing it the way of Jesus, the tree of life, living by presence, or choosing to live by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our, our reason, our ways of doing things. So if you want to go to Genesis 11, that's where our first book, we're going to look at two places in Scripture where we see this kingdom has distorted. Really, there's, there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Satan, his reign and rule, and the kingdom of God, and where his reign and rule. And there's just these two things, these two dynamics are just constantly clashing. But it's not always so easy to see that. It's not always able to see exactly where is Satan lying, right? So last night, I'm on the streets, and we can go to places that's clearly darkness, right? And we say, okay, yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that's not under the reign and rule of God, where there's abuse happening, where there's dr- drugs, where there's obvious sin. But sometimes it's not so obvious, is it? Like I can drive through a really, really rich and nice area and think this looks pretty cool. I can drive and go to Disneyland, Disney World. You guys been there? The happiest place on earth? It's unbelievable. Millions and millions every day spent. And it's just awesome. We go and we just give our allegiance to Mickey Mouse, right? And it's amazing. Is that fully the kingdom of God, his realm? Or is there something else going on there, right? Do we think about that? See, it's easy in the really, really dark areas to say, well, no, that's clearly the enemy, and then everything else. I think the enemy prefers to blend in. I think the enemy prefers to live, I'm not saying he's full on Disney World or he's full, you know what I mean, but I just... I'm not call, I'm just saying I think he likes to, to blend in so that we don't see him. And then we just go through it and live in it and become a part of it. I think the enemy wants to make us asleep. I think he wants to dull us, thinking that everything's okay. 
So that's what we're going to talk. We're going to try to unpack this a little. So Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Now, in this story of Babel, let me just say, this is where I started studying and, and looking, and I, I started like, oh, man, it's just, it's like there's layers of this. And if we got into the Hebrew, Brother Nostra, like, there's word plays, there's all kinds of things that, that are in this chapter, and I'm not going to even begin to really attempt that. Um, I would encourage you if you wanted to study this out, but let me just read it, and then just make a couple, I think there's a couple main points that I want to make from, from Genesis 11. So now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Let, let's just ask, are they obeying God right now? Is there any evidence that they're not obeying God? What, what did I just say? What was God's intent to do? Spread out and scatter. And what are they doing? They're settling in what? One language. One. Stay together. Okay? So they're already rejecting this, this command. So they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. It's interesting. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Where do bricks show up a little bit later? Egypt, right? Remember the Israelites had to make out of bricks. But it's interesting, instead of stone, what does Jesus say about us? We're living stones. That we're going to be built the foundation of Jesus Christ. So they're making these bricks. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches where? To the heavens. So that we will make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be what? Scattered. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to do what's in the heart of God. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to worship God on our own terms. We want to be popular. We want to famous. We want to have a building that we can reach somehow up into the heavens. This place was a place of worship. It was an altar. They were coming to worship a God made in their image, not the true Yahweh, the true God. So the Lord, it's funny, did the Lord already see that? Did he need to come down? Let me ask that. Like, that's just funny in itself, right? But that just shows how the Lord's involved in our affairs. Here, here are the people of God, the irony, they're trying to do what? They're trying to reach up God, but instead God in the heavens has like got to come down to their level, right? They're not doing this thing. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower of the people. I mean, what was that like? The Trinity coming down Yahweh. Like, just funny to me. His presence comes down and he's watching. And the Lord said, as if one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's an interesting phrase to me. Maybe God's sarcastically making fun of them. I don't know if he makes fun of people, but you know what I mean. Like He's saying, like, man, they're going to really do it because they can't. Not do anything impossible. But another thing, isn't it amazing what mankind can do? I mean, we can do pretty crazy stuff because we're made in the image of God. We have incredible intellects. Just look at our creation. Look at the buildings we make. Look at the societies we've created. It's just interesting that the Lord made that comment. If we don't do something to scatter 
they're going to become a too, too powerful of a people. So, come let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because where the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So here the people, they set out to become one people, and instead they left scattered. Multiple language, living. The Lord sent them out anyways. But it's interesting, what does this word Babel mean in this false worship? It's the Babylonian, it's like the gate of God, which is it's not the true gate of God, is it? It's this false gate, this false place, and it means confusion. So I think this was the judgment of God on Babel, on these people, that they would be confused. So I think one of the ways now the enemy uses this Babel, this Babylonian culture, is confusion and false worship. So out of the people, this was their judgment, they were scattered. We get to chapter 12, and what does the Lord do? Calls Abraham, Abram at the time, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So out of all these nations... He calls to Abraham. And so we know the rest of the story of, of Genesis, this amazing people, this amazing tribe. They go to Egypt, and then they're there for 400 years. They come out, and they're made a nation back in Canaan in this land. And so God deals with this land. He deals with the land, but deals with the people. They become a covenant. They, they become um, his people. They become, he becomes their God. And there's all these warnings if you read in Deuteronomy. That if you follow me, if you obey me, I will do what? I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. But if you turn to me, if you rebel, if you have idols, you're going to get sick and and you're going to become like the other nations. And you're going to be eventually carried off to another people. And so then that's in all the warnings in Deuteronomy. And so then we get and they fight for the land... And then in Judges, already they rebelled, generation after generation. They returned to God, and then they rebelled. And then they said, well, we want to be like the other peoples, and so give us a king, give us a leader. And so then they're given kings. And so then Saul and David and Solomon and then so on. And then the kingdom split. And remember, God is slow to anger, and the people keep doing what? Keep rebelling and keep repenting and keep rebelling and just eventually... The rebellion, they get carried off. And so they're in this land of Babylon. So if you want to look at um, Daniel 1, our second chapter. I'm going to read. So I think in, we see the people having pride turning to their own worship in the Tower of Babel now in Daniel. We'll see another aspect of this. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Right? It's just interesting. The Lord is ultimately in control. He's delivering. He, if, if it wasn't the right time, this king would have been delivered. But he was delivered into this hand. And along with some of the articles of the temple of God, These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. 
Then the king ordered Aspenes, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. So here we have these amazing men without blemish. That's just an interesting thing. Do you know that we're that way now? That you guys are all amazing, that we're made in the image of God. We're without blemish, without sin, because we're now the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thought? That we're to be trained. It's interesting, Jesus trained his disciples for how many years? For three years. And then they were ready to enter the king's service and go out and and spread the new kingdom of God. So here are these, these mighty men, Daniel and those three. They were given names. And they had access to Babylon. They had access to every kind of food imaginable. To wine and the king's food every single day. And it gives them the names there, verses 6 through 7. And so listen to verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked that the chief officials for permission not to defile himself. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head cut off, right? Just assuming that we need to become like culture. We need to eat. And if we eat less, if we somehow reject culture, then we're going to be worse for the wear. And they were afraid of that. This guy was afraid. And so Daniel said, let's, let's do this little test for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water. Then compare our parents with the young men who eat the royal food. So he agreed. And at the end of the 10 days, verse 13, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and their vine, and they were allowed to eat, to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. Now, maybe there's a health principle in this, just eating vegetables. Maybe. I can't imagine, though, how unhealthy. I mean, it probably was really rich food, but I'm sure it wasn't very processed food, right? It was just just rich. It was a lot. And I'm sure just eating vegetables, there was some fasting involved, right? They were eating less. Where were they getting their nourishment? Not just from vegetables, but from the Lord, right? As they were becoming kind of separate from culture, the Lord was feeding them. Their minds were being renewed. They were becoming more like God. And so this is what happened. It said to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 20 says, In every matter of wisdom... And understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. 
So they were amazing. They had the mind of God, didn't they? They were made in His image as they did not say yes to the culture around them, as they separated themselves. God poured supernatural wisdom living in Babylon, living in a culture that was not their own. God used them. All right, so let's make a couple comments to to us. I think um, God wants, or the enemy, sorry, wants us to become like culture. I think that's just one of the things he's, he's constantly doing. And so when Jesus came, let me, I wanted to read, sorry, some scripture from the New Testament first. When Jesus came, then he preached this new kingdom, this new reign and rule. He demonstrated the kingdom by healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out lepers. And he preached on the kingdom. He gave parables and he talked about what it was like. And he warned in Mark 8 about leaven, leaven that goes into bread. He warned them against kinds of thinking, the thinking of Herod, of a political kind of thinking, and religious thinking. He knew that, that to be locked on the kingdom, if it was in the center of this narrow road right here, he knew they could get sitting over here with thinking a little bit, caring about political, or we could get on this side and, and get wayward with the religious. And Jesus is like, no, stay right here. Stay consumed about me, about me and my kingdom. And then in Luke 21, reading these next from, from the Passion Translation, it says, be careful that you never allow your hearts. This is Luke 21, 34 and following. Be careful that you never allow your hearts to grow cold. Remain passionate and free from anxiety and the worries of this life. Then you will not be caught off guard by what happens. Don't let me come and, and find you drunk or careless and living like everyone else. For that day will come as a shocking surprise to all. Like a downpour that drenches everyone, catching many unaware and unprepared. Keep a constant watch over your soul and pray for the courage and grace to prevail over all these things that are destined to occur. And that you will stand before the presence of the Son of Man with a clear conscience. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance. None of these things come from the Father, but from the world. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the Old Testament? It says, the gratification of our flesh the allurement, seeing and looking at the things of this world. And the obsession was status and importance. That doesn't sound like America, does it? We're not obsessed with status and importance, are we? None of these things come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are in the process of passing away. But those who love to do the will of God live forever. And then end of 1 John 5, 21 says, So little children, guard yourselves from worshiping everything but Him. So the enemy is coming to dole us. The enemy's coming to, to dole your heart, your worship, and to dole your mind and your thinking. 
So we live in this time, 2,000 years later, we live in the United States of America. I was thinking a little bit about our culture that we live in now in 2018. A couple things that I just wanted to think that, that are just true, and we know this. So how do we guard our hearts from being lulled asleep? Think about what your phone can do. Think about every passion and lust and desire that the human heart, and you can go find it instantly on your phone. Everything, right? So if this is true, the gratification of our flesh and the allurement of the things of the world, the obsession, think what I can do with a device right in me. I can actually worship, I can put anything I want on Facebook, I can make myself look good, and I can kind of satisfy every weird craving in my heart. Think about every material thing I like. I can have literally within two days in my door, can't I? I mean, isn't that just wild? Think about what Amazon has done to comfort. Like anything I want, anything, I don't even have to have money for it anymore, do I? I just have to have a credit card. Like I don't have to have money. I can have a plastic thing that I can apply. I can Google or search it like, I mean, anything. And it shows up on my screen and I hit click and it shows up to me two days later. What does that do to the human heart that's made to worship? My human heart loves things. I'm made to drink and consume God, His presence. But that means if I'm not in Him, I'm going to worship and I'm going to love things. And so what do I do in a culture that allows me everything? And frankly, that's pretty good to do. It's acceptable, right? No one's telling me not to look. Everybody's saying it's okay. I'm bombarded. Every time I turn on the TV, bombarded, bombarded by the culture around me. I scroll and I scroll. If I look at something on Amazon, it's showing in my Facebook. It's just enforcing, right, these desires. It's enforcing habits of consumerism, of money, of my desires. So you guys know this, right? We, we live in it. So what do we do with it? Does it affect us? Does it affect our thinking? So when I get halfway around the world, and the Lord kind of sobered me up, I saw that with new eyes in my own life. And I saw it around me. I thought, man, we are really, really drunk on culture. And just kind of getting away from it, I thought the Lord exposed stuff in my own heart. And I already had been fasting some from media, but it just was something about being around the world, and I thought, wow, I become so dull to the things of God, because I'm so consumed by culture around me. Is this making sense to you guys? You wrestle with that? So just a couple closing remarks to, to think. So I was thinking first about Babel, the Tower of Babel, and I'm not seeing America is Babylon here, Right? Who knows what Babylon is? It's, but it's a cultural thing, right? It's the system of the enemy. It's the system of, of how the, the enemy wants to, to distort. That's, that's what I'm talking about. But it's interesting in the Tower of Babel, what do the people do? They make a tower, a name for themselves, a place of worship, and a place of status. And I was thinking, it's interesting in 9-11, why did that affect us all so much? Like, if they would have attacked farms 
in, America, in, in the middle of Kansas, would have that been a big deal? A little bit. But why did, why did that affect all of us so much? Because what did they hit? What did the two towers represent? In some ways, they represented the core of who we are, our American pride. Buildings, this world trade center, power and money. And they attacked it and they leveled it, right? So I'm wondering, did America learn from that? Did we repent? Did we say, wow, we've been making a name for ourselves. Oh, man. We built a monument. <laughs> and I looked at it. I, I forgot. I, I, I knew this, but it just in light of thinking, you know what the name of it is? One World Tower. Isn't that interesting? Like, could it be more obvious that we're trying to mimic something? The one world tower. Now, am I saying that's the Tower of Babel? That's not what I'm saying, that that's the Tower of Babel. I'm just saying, isn't that an interesting imitation? That we just repeat these mistakes over and over. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? We just repeat over and over. So the one world tower. We just, again, had to make the biggest building in the Western Hemisphere. The sixth tallest in the world. A name for ourselves. It's in our nature. It's in our DNA if we don't know God, to make ourselves great. Isn't it funny, though, in the church we do that too, don't we? We love to have status and ministries and make buildings that are big. And think how that's hit the American church, right? So I don't know the answers for this other than we've got to guard our hearts in it. I know we have to repent and I know means living simple and not caring about those things. And then what do we do about our dull minds and our dull hearts? So I, I will be honest and, and share my two things. You guys have your own, right? You have your own thing. So I'm just going to share. You guys, hopefully the words kind of like just, you know, you're thinking about this. and Like, okay, where are my areas of compromise? Here are my, here are my two. Is, is specific areas of media and then food. So I love food, right? So we're in a food culture where we can actually give ourselves names like foodies, right? And, and we can, Jason and I talk about that, right? Because we love tacos and we love, I, like it's just kind of this thing we can do and it's okay. So, but for me, it's a real thing because I have real health issues, right? How many of you know that your gut, your stomach, now we know more, actually affects your brain? What you eat, you actually start thinking, it, there's, a, there's a direct correlation, right? And so here we are with so much processed food and sugar. So, so two things affect me. No surprise, it's sugar and gluten, right? Do I have allergies that I instantly eat it? That I shake and violently get rashes? No, I wish, I mean, if it would be that easy, then you just don't eat it, right? But sugar affects my brain in a real way. For somebody that's a little bit hyper, high energy, a brain that wants to move fast, guess what sugar does? Woo! And then eventually it starts making it dull, and I can think I become foggy. You guys ever had brain fog? Right? Could be multiple causes. For me, it's sugar, and then flour does the same thing. So I've been on and off sugar and flour multiple times. When I'm off, I feel better. When I'm on, it makes me dull. But guess what? It doesn't happen overnight, does it? So because I love it so much, then I always try to find out, well, what's my line, right? Where's the line? 
So can I have it once a week? Right? Because we don't have to be healthy all the time, do we? Right? Like, if God says something, I can just do it partway, right? And, and so just leave, have your cheat day, right? You don't, don't be too radical. Don't be too crazy about your eating. Have a cheat day, right? Right? You wouldn't tell somebody with a cocaine addiction, <laughs> hey, you know, you're doing good, but every, the 30th of the month, you get a bender with your friends. But then for 29 days, you're really good. You wouldn't give that advice. So why, for somebody that's got a sugar addiction, would you say, well, you're really good, but have the bender, right? Go and have birthday cake and ice cream and then live well. If you're an addict, you're an addict to sugar. But why is sugar just okay? Why is it okay? It's culture. I mean, no one can argue sugar's good. Now, we can talk about gluten and flour and eating. I, I think it affects different things. I'm just, I'm not saying again, if you eat sugar, you're in Babylon and you're, okay, hear me out. I'm not trying to put legalism. I'm talking about my own heart. You wrestle yours out. You wrestle your thing out, Okay. Literally, I'm not trying to tell you. I'm just saying, for me, sugar is addicting. And I can't control it. So I've got to be off sugar. And I've got to be off flour. If I do good, I've been off on day, today's day 15. And I started clearing up again. I can think well. And then I can start exercising a little better. Well, that helps me. And, you know, it's just it's like things build on each other. So that's just simple things. It's food. But isn't that what Daniel did? Don't eat all the food that's offered you. Separate yourself. Separate your body. Your body's what? A temple of God? You're the dwelling place of God. What does God want to do with you when you eat? How does he want to curb your appetites? And I, I know we, we all have that. And then we can make that an idol then too, can't we? Like, we can make food an idol. So I, and being healthy, that can become your religion. Like, we're, right. All right, second thing then is media. I've seen, so, so somebody that has a, a hyper mind, I've realized the internet and social media is like crack cocaine for a brain, right? My brain that constantly moves, constantly thinking. I got to like look at it because I just, I can't sit with my thoughts. I don't want to. I got to get, oh, I got to look again, stimulate, 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 more dopamine, more dopamine, more hits, right? And then I get back, oh, more, 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 right? This is just, again, my mind. I think this is a lot of our minds, right? We could probably have Tim come talk about the mind a little bit better. This is true, isn't it? We get addictions. And then we, get, we were just talking about the mind earlier and all these places the mind can go. So you know what happens when I get off media? I relax. I think. I dream. I partner with God. I pray. I'm not consumed. Isn't that interesting? So what do we do? How do you, do you just get rid of your cell phone? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would like to. Do you get off social media? I don't know. You guys rustle it out. So I don't, I don't have a problem with Netflix, okay? I didn't, I'm not going to talk about TV and Netflix. That doesn't, I'm not consumed to watch vendors or TV shows, right? Mine's sports, and consuming with people, right? Like, I want to read and follow every score. That's me. Numbers, something it does to my mind. Maybe it's other kinds of media. Maybe yours isn't sugar food. Maybe it's something else. 
I would just ask you, where's the enemy sneaking in to dull you? See, God's given you guys a spirit. Your spirit dwells here, right? You know that, right? When I say here, I don't know. Deep within you. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You guys feel the spirit of God? He communicates to you. He's there whispering things in your heart. Does he take a microphone and yell loud? Not too often, does he? But when you get yourselves quiet, he wants to speak, doesn't he? And he tells us things. And he wants to fill your mind with his heart. What if we've turned up the frequency of culture so much that we can't hear him? I would just say, I think this is what the enemy's strategy is. I think he's got lots of strategies. I'm just saying this is part of it. Dullness. So Jesus says to keep alert, to be awake so that you can pray. What did the disciples do on the most important night of Jesus' life? They couldn't stay awake. You ever wondered why, why did Jesus need them awake? Jesus is, he's God. He didn't need them. He needed friends, didn't he? He needed partners. Jesus is still looking for his partners to be alert, staying awake with him. You guys know we're, we're coming to a climax, right? You know, that's where we're all going. Isn't that going to be awesome? We're getting ready for it, you guys. It's coming. Those days are coming really, really close. And he's actually looking for partners all over the earth to say who's going to say yes to heaven and earth, being filled in them, and staying up with Jesus and being alert and watching. Wouldn't that be something? Staying up late, 10, 11, 12 at night, not being drunk on culture. Not worried about the latest news show and what Jimmy Fallon's saying, and right? What's that? Oh, he's a, you know, I just threw him out, right? I don't watch him. I don't actually know who he is. He's, he's just a funny dude, right? I mean, just saying, what are your habits? What, what keeps your heart dull? And so you just get to hang out with him. See, it's not instant gratification, though. You might sit in silence for a while. God's actually pretty patient. You may turn off all your phone, all your devices, and fast. And he's like, all right, I'm just going to let him sit. (laughs) And then you give up, and you go back. Well, that wasn't worth it. See, I want everything now, instant. I want my... I want everything instant in two days. I don't have to grow a garden anymore, right? I don't want to develop a garden, so we're starting our our first garden at our new house. We've got terrible soil, and we're going to have to rototill, and we're going to have to We had to cut down a tree. We've got roots. We've got weeds. Like, we may or may not get a harvest this year. Next year, next year after that. There's something that God wants to do in your heart as you labor with him. He wants to clean the weeds up. He wants you to become like him. And he wants to partner with you, and he wants friends. He wants to reveal his secrets to you. Do you guys know that? He's got secrets to tell you. He doesn't tell them to everybody. You understand that? He doesn't tell these things to everybody. He tells his friends. Jesus had 12 of them, but he had Peter, James, and John. Those three got to do more. They were invited up to the mountain with him. They got to go and do special healings. And they got to pray with him on the last night. They weren't always faithful, were they? Jesus doesn't want perfection from you all. He's the perfect one. He wants your heart. 
He wants you to just participate in this. Just say, okay, I'm going to try to fast for a couple days. Jesus, help me. Clear it out. Clear out my food. Clear out my system so I can hear. Sound okay? So let's pray a little bit.